This is the State of Things. I'm Frank Stacio, the soon-to-be-retired host of this show, spending my last few days in this role listening back to some of the more memorable conversations I've had over the past 15 years. Today, I want you to hear a program we did earlier this year on recent inroads made by organized labor. It's always been an uphill fight for workers in this country. The pandemic makes things worse. On our show, we heard from dozens of workers speaking out about inadequate safety measures that endanger the whole community. Here's a sample of workers and organizers who joined us this year. If you're concerned about police violence, you cannot then leave off the table dealing with economic injustice and poverty and those issues that exploit communities in ways that are needless today. The planning is all being done by white-collar, middle-class white people who are high up on the pay scale. That failing will manifest itself in workers possibly dying. Give us the proper equipment that we need for our safety. Like, they're in your face. They want to know why there's no stuff here. They want to know where's the truck. I'm working with some of the most underpaid and overworked folks in the state and live in substandard housing and, and often face retaliation for speaking up about issues on the job. And we really need to be talking about household labor and child care when we talk about essential work. We do everything to do ours, but I'm still, still not doing no good if I'm going to work into, into this environment. Where is our protection? Many raise the alarm without the protection of a union. Here in North Carolina, our union membership is the second last in the nation because of anti-union laws and a violent history of workplace retaliation. Back in September, we invited Maxwell Millington, a writer for Cardinal and Pine, which is owned by Courier Newsroom, a project funded by the progressive nonprofit Acronym, and David Zonderman, a professor and head of the history department at North Carolina State University. I put my first question to David Zonderman. I wanted to know what he makes of this moment as we see growing worker protests at a time when workers would seem most vulnerable. Well, I think what you've said is is exactly right. Um, You know, we are in, needless to say, we all know absolutely unprecedented times. Nobody has lived through a kind of pandemic like this. The last one was more than 100 years ago. Um, And a lot of workers on their own are mobilizing for just basic needs and protections. Um, I mean, it's it's certainly some of it has to do with things like wages or, or particularly health insurance, but a lot of it is just basically safety in the workplace. Um, and certainly union, where workers have a union, they're more likely to get support on this issue. But a lot of workers are just struggling on their own because, as you said, in this state, our unionization rate is exceedingly low. Um, and so you both see workers sort of naturally, uh, natural tendency to mobilize and also the need for them to have unions to protect their interests. Yeah, it's very interesting. As we say, doing it with a, by and large without union protection, though mobilizing to get that protection. And Maxwell, also the other vulnerable part of this or what makes workers more vulnerable is t- typically high unemployment undermines labor movements. Workers obviously become more expendable. But the fight for higher minimum wages continued with strikes and walkoffs in North Carolina. What are you hearing from workers who, who are a part of this movement? Yeah, so there were a couple uh, strikes uh, in the we've had recently in the fast food industry. Um, you know, workers either just walking off the job in the middle of lunch at Freddy's in Durham, and um, Bojangles workers uh, stri- striking in the Triangle area because 
of essentially the first of all management not being transparent about um, COVID-19 cases uh, among employees, but also just uh, there not being deep cleanings or uh, even even pay for those employees that do have to quarantine. Um, and they're owed that um, pay under the Family's First Coronavirus Response Act. And, and so these things are not really being uh, implemented in, in these cases. And as you said, um, you know, it it seems as if um, management has the attitude as as though these workers are expendable. So um, the, the the needs and the uh, concern and the consideration uh, for for safety is not being met. So we're talking about at this level some of the most uh, poorly paid workers, uh, those who have had to stay on the job by and large uh, because they're uh, people who can't call it in. But also there are people at the higher end of the spectrum. Maxwell, one of the interesting mobilizations of labor this year, professional athletes refusing to play in solidarity with protest against police brutality and racial injustice. Talk about what we've seen in the sports world this year. Yeah, the, so in the, this sports world, it's been a really, really, um, there's been a lot of movement. I'll, I'll just say that. And, um, you know, we, I just, we just published yesterday the, a full timeline on Courier Newsroom's uh, site about what, kind of what's happened since uh, George Floyd. Obviously, there, there have been movements, uh, you know, prior to this, but really a lot has, has changed. Um, you know, they, there has been, we saw NASCAR, for example, um, ban the Confederate flag, and we've seen organizations like the NFL and the NBA, the WNBA, uh, take action and, and do things, and 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 not only by um, not only symbolically, but also financially. We've seen it, but also, um, you know, players are continuing to uh, take it a step further. Um, some some professional athletes are just refusing to play, you know, entirely, which is what we saw on a larger level, but also. Um, here in here in the state, we see just more players uh, speaking out. Whether it be um, the Panthers and the and the, co- and the players and coaches um, canceling practice to have to have discussions about uh, social justice, and well, we saw um, college uh, our college coaches, Coach K, Williams, Mac Brown, all speak out about um, police brutality and racism. So there are um, things that are happening on a, on a huge scale, and a lot of sports areas but also even locally we're we're just seeing um, more action being being taken on a daily basis yeah and and uh, athletes are really in many cases taking some risks when they speak out we talked to elizabeth williams a former duke player now the secretary of the wnba players association and she currently plays with the atlanta dreams and she spoke with us about not only their affiliation with Black Lives Matter protests, but officially endorsing a candidate running against Georgia Senator Kelly Leffler, who is one of the co-owners of the Atlanta team. We're united in supporting Black Lives Matter and fighting for equality and speaking up for people who, who often aren't heard. So I think that's what drove a lot of our player statement and then a lot of the sentiment around the league. And it was interesting how it came about to lead into the political sphere because obviously we're not politicians, but fortunately between our union's board of advocates and just constant communication with different organizations and groups, we found ourselves in this unique position where Raphael Warnock was actually running in that Senate seat that um, our co-owner is in. After talking with him and vetting him, having all these pieces kind of fall into place, um, we thought it was important for not only for the Atlanta team to take a stand, but for our entire league to 
to support him and basically support someone who is fighting for the things that we as players have been fighting for for a long time. That was Elizabeth Williams, a former Duke basketball player, secretary of the WNBA Players Union. I'm talking with Maxwell Millington, a writer for Cardinal and Pine, which is owned by Courier Newsroom, a project funded by the progressive nonprofit acronym. Maxwell, you know, we think about these this moment. Colin Kaepernick obviously comes to mind as well. But this activism goes back a while, right? Give us a kind of brief history of athletes and activism. Yeah, I mean, activism goes back decades. Uh, I think of... Uh, you know, Hitler using German track and field athletes to promote the Nazi party. And Jesse Owens, obviously, his his athletic performance, even though he didn't say anything, his, by winning, the, you know, the gold medal at the Berlin Olympics in 36, helped um, help to combat that, that mentality um, that Hitler was trying to remote. Um, obviously, Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Bill Russell were athletes in the 60s and 70s that were speaking out um, about, you know, some of the thing, same things we're talking about today. And even, uh, you know, Magic Johnson being vocal on um, HIV and AIDS funding and, and bringing awareness to that. Um, and, you know, and what these players are really trying to say also is that some of these issues just aren't political. They're human rights issues. And so when it comes to human rights issues, we should all, they, they believe that we should all um, have a have be able to have a conversation and you know not just stick to entertainment and sports but really uh, talk about the, these things that affect everyone. David Zonderman at NC State is there anything different about the kind of activism that we're seeing in this moment or anything different about this moment that has mobilized athletes in a different way? Um, I want to pick up on a couple of things Max said because I think what's really interesting now is we're seeing activism from both some of our most skilled workers, and those would be our professional athletes, and some of what are considered unskilled workers, though I would argue they actually have a number of skills, and those are, for example, people that work in our fast food industry. Um, and I think, it, you know, as a historian, I'd say it, it's two things that strike me. One is the power of skilled workers. Skilled workers often form very strong unions because of their skills. They're very hard to replace. You can't just say, well, you know, we're going to fire all of our NBA athletes and just find some other guys to play basketball. Lots of people can play basketball, and some of them are pretty good, but not many can play at the NBA level that people come to expect. So there's real power in skill. On the other end of the spectrum, though, what's going on today is in some ways reminds me of what happened way back in the 30s in the depths of the Great Depression. Because as you said, Frank, the models usually show when unemployment goes up, labor activism goes down. NC State History Department Chair David Zonderman and Maxwell Millington, who writes for Cardinal and Pine, which is owned by the Courier Newsroom, a project funded by the progressive nonprofit acronym. He's the host of Barbershop 919 podcast as well. Just ahead, we explore the violent repression of unions in North Carolina with the descendant of Ella Mae Wiggins, and we look to the future of economic justice with a worker-owned textile mill. You're listening to The State of Things from North Carolina Public Radio, a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Stay with us. This is The State of Things, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Frank Stacio. Collective action meant survival for many workers on the front lines of the pandemic. Workers spoke out and saved lives. Without the protections of union representation, healthcare workers risked their jobs to raise the alarm about PPE shortages. Fast food workers continue striking to improve safety measures. 
customers can thank organized grocery workers for increased sanitation and protective shields at stores across the country. Unionized workplaces are 30% more likely to be inspected for health and safety violations, and those benefits extend out into the community. Yet only 1 in 10 workers in the U.S. are currently members of a union. In North Carolina, only 2.7% of workers are unionized, which puts our state second to last in the nation. We continue our replay of a conversation about labor movements in North Carolina with David Zonderman, a professor of history and head of the history department at NC State. This program was recorded on September 9th of this year, so my reference to an anniversary for labor activist LMA Wiggins is now dated. Before the break, David was talking about the fact that today, workers who would appear to be the most vulnerable are among those who are risking the little income they're making by raising their voices in protest. Yeah, I think what we're seeing here does have interesting parallels to what went on in the Great Depression. Because in the Great Depression, even in a period of massive unemployment, many workers, including what, again, some people call semi-skilled, lower-skilled workers, um, mobilized and eventually formed mass industrial unions. And it's always been, you know, labor historians debate this all the time. Why did that happen? Why did it defy what seemed to be the model, which is when lots of people are unemployed, everyone hunkers down and tries to protect their job and no one sticks their neck out. In fact, they did. And as you say today, people are doing it. And there's a couple of theories. Some of it has to do with labor law. Some of it has to do with union leaders. And a lot of it just has to do with mobilizing among people themselves. And that there was a, there's a sense of when your back is to the wall, some people hunker down and hide. And others just say, we're not going to take it anymore. If we're, in effect, to put it bluntly, if we're going to go down, we're going to go down swinging. And we're going to go down fighting for our basic human rights. And I think we're seeing that a lot today. People know there's high unemployment, but many of them are working in areas where they're told they're essential workers. And their attitude is, if I'm essential, then treat me as essential. Treat me with respect. You know, protect my health. Um, give me the, the PPE and all of that. So it's an interesting parallel. Um, and, and we can learn a lot from what workers did during the Great Depression as well. Well, let's talk about some of the specifics here in North Carolina. We can return to the HCA Mission Health uh, nurses in western North Carolina. Usually with nurses unions, one of the biggest um, issues beyond basic stuff like their wages and benefits, which are always important, but with nurses, a lot of it is staffing ratios. Um, in many hospitals today, to try to cut costs, they're increasing the number of patients that nurses are responsible for. And nurses say, and I, I think they, they certainly know their work far better than I do, um, you know, the more patients you put on one nurse, the chances increase for an, unavoidable, an, an, an unforeseen or a tragic error. Um, Chances are nurses increased their injury rate because they're moving more patients, some of whom are, are frankly obese and hard to move. Um, so staffing is often a huge issue in many nurses' organizing campaigns. But this is another example where, again, unionization, and we've, we've talked about the statistic earlier, that they tend to be where there are unions, there's a, 30, there's a, there's a much greater likelihood that there are better safety and health uh, provisions and regulations in that workplace. And so here's a, another case where this brings broad social benefits. Everybody benefits if your hospital is safer. Isn't that right? I mean, that's that's not just the nurses who benefit from that. Uh, absolutely. And that's the argument that, that nurses make. It's, 
it's similar to the argument that teachers make about class size. I mean, they're, they're partly doing it, obviously, for their own safety and health, and I think they have every right to do that. But you're absolutely correct. The other thing they say is we'll give better patient care. I mean, if I can, if a nurse can attend to whatever is the recommended number by the professional societies, six patients or whatever, if you double that, it's, it becomes almost impossible for them to give the people the kind of care they, they need and deserve. So it's, again, staffing issues are just crucial with, with nurses, just like class sizes are for teachers. Let's talk about this, the process of unionization. Why do workers need government approval to unionize? Um, under American labor law, if you want your union to be recognized in a legal fashion and get what, what little protection there is under American labor law, you have to have an election or a, or a, or a certification that's supervised by the National Labor Relations Board. So that's what's going on now. Um, and I'll add one other factor that was going on through the summer was they were arguing over the bargaining unit itself. And the bargaining unit is the specific workers, a list of workers that can vote in the union election. Um, and it's a very common tactic now for employers that are trying to fight unions to fight over the bargaining unit itself, to make it either smaller or larger, depending on their strategy. Sometimes you try to make the bargaining unit smaller to try to carve out groups of workers you think might be pro-union. Sometimes you actually try to make it larger to bring in parts of your company where you think the workers will not be interested in the union. So this is a very common tactic. Talk about, you You mentioned, the what few protections there are. There were more under federal law. They've been eroding over the past, I don't know, 30, 40 years, right? Yeah, I mean, the you know, well, two points. One is the the core, the, the, the primary American labor law is the National Labor Relations Act, sometimes called the Wagner Act, because Senator Robert Wagner of New York was the one who pushed it in the mid-1930s. Um, and that's the one that set up the National Labor Relations Board, the election process. Um, it's supposed to protect workers' rights to organize. But it has a lot of loopholes. Um, and up through the 1970s, companies didn't actively try to maneuver through the loopholes or push the loopholes wider. For the past 40 years or more, we've seen companies go to the courts, and the courts have often been more sympathetic to employers than workers, and they've tried to widen loopholes. I mean, I'll just give one example. Um, the, the, the law says you cannot be fired for uh, trying to organize a union. Uh, but what happens is sort of two things. One is Bosses find all kinds of clever ways to say, oh, I didn't fire you for trying to organize a union. You know, you dropped your chewing gum wrapper <laughs> where you weren't supposed to, or mm. something like that. Yeah. Um, and the other way is they'll say, well, you know, fight me. So you have to then go right. and file what's called an unfair labor practice with the National Labor Relations Board. And then if the company wants to fight you, sometimes that can go on for years. And at the end of it, after years, when you've probably gone out and found another job, the only punishment is the company has to pay you your back wages minus any wages you've earned in the in the intervening years. So it's often a very small amount of money. There's no fine. There's no way to get a legal injunction. So the law is very weak. Let's talk about who is and who is not unionized and maybe some of the barriers. Women's rate of union membership remains lower than men's. 
Um, I guess part of the uncertainty has to do with the way we even define work with women disproportionately forced into unpaid or underpaid labor, uh, child care, household duties, that sort of thing that doesn't get uh, counted as part of the GDP often. Uh, how does gender play into today's labor movement? Um, you're absolutely right, and I think you gave the absolute correct explanation that a lot of women's unpaid work, particularly um, child care work and things of that sort, um, is not counted as quote-unquote real work. And if anyone has done that kind of work, they know it absolutely is real work in all kinds of ways. Um, but I think what we're seeing now is in, um, you know, the biggest growth in our economy, obviously up until the pandemic hit, is in the service sectors. And in those areas, you have large numbers of women workers. And, and American unions, I would say in the past decade or two, are really, they're finally turning the old ship around. I mean, this was like moving an ocean liner, but they're getting a bit more nimble. They're going where the workers are. They're realizing that these are the industries that are growing to organize service workers is sometimes a different strategy than organizing factory workers. Um, and a large number of these people are women and or uh, people of color as well. And so the union movement is becoming much more diverse. I think the leadership is in many unions is diversifying. Again, it's been a slow process. And mm. in my opinion, in some cases, too slow, but it's happening. Well, with citizenship status, for instance, which is a place where we could see more diversity, but that's also obviously a huge barrier to unionization. Um, talk about that. And in the food processing industry, this has been important, but often um, undocumented or H-2A workers are, are working in those. What's the dynamic there with with uh, undocumented workers? So, so it's such um, an important part of the workforce. Absolutely. And I think two things are going on. One is... Um, certain sectors of the economy, and you just mentioned meatpacking is a very good example, uh, where work is especially onerous, dangerous, even before COVID, but even more dangerous now. Wages tend to be low. They tend to often recruit, or some people might even say prey, on undocumented workers that, that feel vulnerable. Um, the idea is they won't complain because they don't want to get deported. Um, uh, but at the same time, the American labor movement is also, this is a huge shift in the American labor movement. And again, it took a while and it took some deep debates, but uh, the AFL-CIO, which is the sort of umbrella organization of most major unions in the country, um, in recent years has shifted on the question of immigration. For a long time, they were strongly um, about, you know, removing all illegal immigrants, kind of round them up and get rid of them, something we now hear much more from the conservative side of the house. Um, but recently, the FLCI was shifted and realized these are workers. These are working people that need unions and protection. And as long as they're being exploited, not only are they harmed, but they drive down wages for other workers as well and can undermine organizing campaigns. So the important thing is to bring them into the labor movement. And again... As a historian, I can tell you that debate has gone on. Well, the, the, the other part, yeah. Well, another part of the debate is over race. Black American workers now have a higher rate of union membership than their white or Latino part, uh, counterparts. Why do you think that is? Again, you're absolutely right, and that started as early as the '50s and '60s with the emergence of the modern civil rights movement. And I think African American workers um, started to see more that that potentially unions could be a mechanism. Uh, both to protect them on the workplace from really grotesque racial discrimination um, and also a mechanism that could help them in their fights for civil rights and political and legal rights. Once again, the, the labor movement itself was slow. Some unions remained 
just overtly racist into the 1960s and 70s. Um, most of them have changed. Um, the composition of many unions and union leadership, again, is, is shifting. Again, I think right. most many of us would argue not as fast as it should have been, but it's shifting. Well, race was long understood to be an important part of the labor movement, even well before the, this, uh, the 60s and 70s. North Carolina's extraordinarily low union membership rate is the result of a long history of anti-union intimidation and violence. This Saturday marks 91 years since the assassination of Ella Mae Wiggins. The 29-year-old balladeer, labor leader, and mother was killed for organizing textile workers in Gastonia, North Carolina. Part of the communist-led National Textile Workers Union, Wiggins united black and white mill workers in the fight for a 40-hour week and living wage. I'm joined now by her great-granddaughter, Christina Horton, the author of Martyr of Loray Mill, Ella May, and the 1929 textile workers' strike in Gastonia, North Carolina. Christina is an elementary school teacher outside of Asheville at Haw Creek Elementary and joins us now. Hello, Christina. Hello. It's nice to talk to you. Good to talk with you. Tell us about Ella May and, and her how she got involved uh, with mill workers. She didn't grow up in a mill worker family, right? No, no. Um, listening to everyone talk before me, it, it just reminds me how long these issues have been around. Um, safe working conditions, racism. Um, Ella May, she started off um, in the mountains, and uh, she worked on a family farm, and the railroad industry came in, and her family joined that. And then both her her father died um, working in the logging industry, and her husband w- became a cripple. And at that time, there were very few options for women, but she needed to work, so she joined the textile industry. And she found how harsh the conditions were, and how little she made. Four of her children died because she could not feed them properly or afford the medicine that they needed. So life was really, really rough. And what were the conditions? So, oh, go ahead. But do, do, do I, finish. I was going to say she, um, she was so poor by 1929, she's living in the edge of a black community. And that's how she really got intertwined with black workers and how she was able to get black workers to join a union in the 1920s and 1929. Yes, she lived in a place that was known as Stumptown, right? Right, yeah, right. right. Which is and interesting so, in a sense because it wasn't mill-owned housing. So in some ways, living off in the woods in that black community called Stumptown made you somewhat less vulnerable because people who walked off the job then lost their housing because the mill owners would punish them, right? Right, right. Many, many workers lost their homes. Um, LMA did not... Mm. Um, life was very, very rough and very harsh. And, you know, because she was organizing black workers and she was a young, poor white woman in the 1920s, she was hated. She was a villain because of it. And also the National Textile Workers Union, uh, These were this was a union essentially organized in the North. It was a communist-led movement, although communism didn't have quite the feel it did, say, in the post-World War II. It was, a, it was still a viable alternative then. But still, this added to the resentment that she faced in here in the South, right? Right. So because it was a communist-led union, they believed in equal, the radical idea of equal pay for equal work for women and children, and that the union shouldn't just be for white workers, it should be for black workers, too. Um, but the leaders, you know, and the, the strikers, you know, it wasn't about 
is about survival. You know, it wasn't about this big underlying philosophy. It was about what do we need to do to survive. And this was in the midst of something known as the stretch-out. The textile mills had done pretty well in the early 20s in the aftermath of World War I, but starting to lose steam, uh, they were starting to become the mills less profitable. And so what the owners did was, uh, was stretch out the, uh, a stretch-out system. So describe what that was and what that meant for workers. Right. It's similar to what's going on right now with the nurses in North Carolina, um, demanding more and more work, that, that there are less employees to do the work that was done by many, a few need, must do now. So it was is requiring, especially in the South, you know, this is before air conditioning. Um, workers in the South were used to working long hours, but at a slower pace. But now they were expected to go full steam all day long in these hot, very hot factories. And so it really was unbearable. They were doubling the workload and they were cutting pay. And but and talk about the different ways, because we said there was some skepticism and a little bit of uh, fear on the part of even some of the workers that this was the northern led movement. What's this communism all about, led by an African-American woman? But there were ways in which LMA understood how to organize down here that were different. And music was a big part of that, right? Absolutely. So these northern organizers that talked funny and dressed funny would speak. And then LMA and other musicians, they would get on the platform and they would play their ballads that were about what's happening. And the workers really could relate to what LMA and other balladeers were saying because it was their experience and they could connect. And it was really the music that drew you know, drew workers in. Every union meeting ended in music, and LMA seemed to have a different song. We're listening back to a show from earlier this year about workers and labor unions. We're talking with Christina Horton, author of Martyr of Loray Mill, LMA, and the 1929 textile workers' strike in Gastonia, North Carolina. Christina is the great-granddaughter of LMA Wiggins. More of this conversation in a moment. First, here's Pete Seeger singing LMA's Mill Mother's Lament. We'll be right back. This is the State of Things. I'm Frank Stacio. North Carolina's history of labor movements is marked by intimidation and violence. It's part of the reason our state ranks second to last in union membership in the nation. We're continuing our replay of a conversation from earlier this year about the Loray Mills strike and the assassination of LMA Wiggins. I'm here with Christina Horton, a descendant of LMA and author and elementary school teacher. LMA Wiggins and other organizers travel to Washington, D.C. to meet with lawmakers about their demands for a 40-hour work week and equal pay for women and children. I asked Christina how legislators received the visit. Well, they first of all, when they found out that they were coming, they ended session real quickly. So when the strikers arrived in D.C., there was no one to meet with them. So they walked around the streets and they ran into a North Carolina senator And the senator, who, by the way, was with these young college women giving them a tour, and there's this group of poorly dressed textile workers that are looking, you know, quite, you know, disheveled. Um, They approached the senator, and he told the the youngest girl there, 12-year-old Benny Green, that she needs to go back to school. Well, Ella May stood up and she said, I can't send my children to school. I can't even afford to dress them properly. And there's some reporters there and they wrote down what happened and it had gone international. Um, 
the the meeting, you know, that of the well-dressed young ladies and the textile workers and what Ella Mae said, you know, how, how hard things are for her and her family. And, um, yeah, she, she did not back down. She no. stood her ground and when she felt like there's something to say, she said it. Well, she did. And she paid dearly for that commitment. She was killed, assassinated. The anti-union conspirators were never convicted. And the Southern labor movement struggled to regain momentum, right, amidst fear of retaliation. I mean, talk about the impact of the strike and ultimately of her murder. Well, you know, as one of her descendants, um, when I was researching what happened to LMA and you know, this is 1929, the Great Depression hit, and things got worse before they got that they got better. And at first, that made me very sad because I felt like, you know, she had fought so hard and she had died for nothing. But that isn't true. So many people, you know, when change doesn't occur overnight, it's many, many people before that have influenced the people that come after. And I have seen firsthand how her story has inspired others, others that are on the streets now protesting and making a stand. So I see her as an inspiration, and that's why I want people to know about her and, and what she did, and, and hopefully it will inspire others to take action and make a stand. What do you think we should focus on? What's the most important part or some of the most important elements that we should take away today? Because as you say, these conditions have now, I mean, maybe they've never gone away, but it seems more evident now than ever. What's, so, what's important about her legacy? It's really hard to say. Um, racism, you know, she, she was very brave, you know, to stand up to racism the economic divide that we're seeing, the safe working conditions. You know, I'm a teacher, so I see many teachers that are concerned about their safety. So, you know, there's a lot. You know, these mm-hmm. issues for workers, they've been around for a long time. Um, but speaking out about what you believe is right is very, very important, whatever that is. Christina Horton is the great-granddaughter of LMA and the author of Martyr of Lorraine Mill, also a teacher at Haw Creek Elementary. Christina, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Still here with David Zonderman, a professor and the head of the history department at North Carolina State University. It's interesting because you've talked so many times about things might have moved slowly. Some people think that the progress has been too slow, but it is being made. And if you think back to 1929, Ella Mae Wiggins dies in the fight for the 40-hour work week, and now we take it for granted. So uh, I guess it is a long, it is a long fight, huh, David? <laughs> exactly. And in fact, your, your phrase, taking it for granted, is really key. There's, there are a number of people today who make the argument that we don't need unions anymore because we have these laws, like the 40-hour work week is in what's called the Fair Labor Standards Act, which was passed in 1937, just a couple years after the Wagner Act. Um, but I remind people of two things. One is that law, like the Wagner Act, has a lot of loopholes. And in fact, companies today are finding more and more ways to fudge sort of what exactly is a 40-hour week. Can you stretch it over two and all kinds of things. Um, and in fact, only certain workers are covered by both of those acts. And in fact, the Obama administration tried to expand the number of workers who could get covered. And the Trump administration has repealed most of those expansions. So it's a very limited law. And the other thing I always remind people is these laws were passed 
not out of the goodness of anyone's heart. It's because organized labor was around and exerted a lot of pressure on Congress to pass these laws. So well, you know, and, without organized labor, would we have these laws to begin with? And let's talk about that pressure just for a second. I want to put one more question to you, and then I want to move on to another subject. But here, the idea of electoral politics and public opinion plays an important part in how well the labor movement will do in gaining these uh, these protections. Uh, so a lot depends on what you know the public opinion is at the moment. And I'm wondering how, how that has changed over time. And the fact that the labor movement really did involve a lot of social issues. It was integrated with social issues and concerns about child care, education, racial justice, all part of the movement before World War II. And then afterward, once that movement got tied up in the Cold War uh, and Cold War politics, things changed uh, and were reduced, I think, to wages and benefits. But before that, it was a social movement, and it appears to be that again now. Would you say, David? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. To both your points, the first is, you know, um, the public opinion of unions has actually improved in the recent five or ten years. Unions today have a favorability rate of about two thirds of all Americans now. And at one point that had fallen below 50%. So more people have a positive opinion. And I think that's, that's good. That bodes well for workers in this country. Um, politics, that's a huge debate. Um, I happen to be one of those people who believes in the sort of all of the above um, action. In other words, I think unions have to work hard to strengthen themselves and build their own activism and democracy, but they also need to be sensitive to political activism and democracy. Other people feel unions have spent too much time playing politics and not getting a lot out of it. I, I'm concerned that if they ignore politics, politics isn't gonna treat them any better. Um, your point about unions and sort of larger social issues, again, uh, particularly in the 30s and 40s with what were called the CIO unions. Those are the big industrial unions, many of them, not all, but many of them, were very involved in questions of civil rights and racial justice, um, questions of, they even talked about things like national health care. Um, and you're right, after the Second World War, many of the largest unions became much more stricted, restricted. They, they talked more about what we call today business unionism. All we care about is what our own members get. What are their wages? What are their benefits? What are our work rules? Which are all important, but if you don't care about the rest of the community, then, in fact, you weaken your union's position. We saw that 10 years ago in the Great Recession when a lot of people um, started attacking unions with the idea of, um, you know, even if we, um, you know, if, if our wages are in decline, if our jobs are in decline and yours are not because you're in a union, then we resent you and we're trying to drag mm -hmm. you down with us. And that was a Poor strategy for everyone involved. Well, unionism is really the result of an adversarial relationship between business, the owners, and the workers, but it doesn't have to be that way. And the movement to unite textile workers for fair pay and better conditions continues in North Carolina with democracy in mind. In Morganton, plenty of mills have shut down since the globalization of the 90s, but some drew on the region's history of labor organizing to rebuild resilient employee-owned factories. Opportunity Threads operates under a cooperative structure that equitably distributes profits back to the employees. The co-op is a member of the Industrial Commons. It's a network of like-minded small industrial businesses that are committed to regional economics. NC State Professor David Zonderman still with me, and I'm joined now by Molly Hemstreet, 
who's the founder of Opportunity Threads and executive co-director of Industrial Commons. Hello, Molly. Hi, Frank. Also Thanks with for having me. It's good to have you. And Walter Bicente is here as well, a plant manager and a worker owner of Opportunity Threads. Walter, welcome to you. Hey. Thanks for having me. Molly, tell us um, it's a pleasure to have you. Opportunity Threads, tell us a little bit about what it what it is and what it does. Sure. So we've been hearing about the the rich and often difficult history of North Carolina, but there continues to be um, a really robust manufacturing capacity here in textiles, which is lived out today, um, and we're really seeing the life of that come back, in fact, as people are asking about how do we build more localized production and supply chains that are here. So we um, kind of, my some of my roots were coming watching, watching unionization and the struggle of that in North Carolina. And so we, and I build a plant asking that question of, well, what if the workers are in charge of the plant determining the almost the laws within that plant, how things are governed, and ultimately being the recipient on the other side of the benefits of the profits of that company. So we are a cut-and-sew plant, and most of our um, cut-and-sew is based on sustainability, so sustainable upcycling and recycling of products. Well, let's think about, because if, if people have thought about co-ops at all, one of the questions that comes to mind from your description is, well, how is anybody going to decide, you know, what to do and what kind of discipline? Is everybody going to vote on bathroom breaks? And how do you actually get the job done if everybody has a say in the work? How does that work? Yeah, so that's really, um, you know, the, that, that difference between governance, management, and ownership. And just because you have ownership doesn't mean that you're weighing in on every decision. And particularly as our company has been able to scale we're up to now 52 and growing employees. Some of those folks are employees. Some of them have membership. Some of them have um, management stakes. So it's really about everyone knowing that we're in it together. And um, we do have folks that are managing the business so that we can all pull in the same direction. And, and there so- are votes on certain things but not votes on everything. But not votes on everything. So there's professional management. You defer to what the manager says. So there can there can be in a co-op a hierarchy of management like that, and you can decide as you build your co-op how you want that to look. But I guess the key is equity. You own it. You're, as the growth in value increases, it does not that value doesn't go to some shareholder who may or may not live in your community, who may or may not know anything about your family. It goes to you. You built the equity. That's right. You put the value into the company, and you get it back out. Sounds exactly. like capitalism. So, so for now, that's right. So, I mean, for now, what we're doing is we, we are determining what is the need of our community. We've been, we've been supporting schools. We've been supporting teachers. We've been, even started our own foundation to support some of the, the home countries where many of our workers are from indigenous Guatemala. So we can determine what to do at the other side of those, those profits and really democratically decide where that profit goes and really root that wealth within our community and not have it extracted, which has been really the experience of workers in North Carolina and industry as our work is extracted from us and our wealth subsequently is extracted from our communities. So this is really a model that can help reverse that trend and really root wealth locally. And Walter, I know you were working in fast food and meat processing before you were at this co-op, right? So what did management look like at a meat processing facility, again, owned by somebody else? Uh, and how does that compare to the sort of relationship you have with the other worker owners? Uh, I yeah. yeah um, so there's there's a big difference because um, when I was working at the meat plant, um, I was working so many hours. I was working on the their supervisor that uh, 
he would never let us uh, use the bathroom or would have to wait for somebody else to take our position before we go to the bathroom. That was something that got me. But uh, working here in this environment, it's just so uh, I mean, different because we have our boys. Uh, our boys can be heard. We're treated uh, so different. Uh, the environment that we have here doesn't compare to the meat plant, the convenience store where I worked at. Uh, it's just so amazing uh, that uh, the difference between a cooperative and a regular company. I think the owners of the meat processing plant would say, we have to have those rules, otherwise we'd never get these chickens processed. Uh, people wouldn't work hard enough. Uh, how, does it, how does the work compare in terms of people's commitment to the job where you are now at Opportunity Threads compared to that plant? Uh, you see, um, I think you said uh, something uh, that, uh, right now. The, the owners of the chicken plant, I never met them. They, ne- they would never come down to to say hi to us. They w- I've never met them. I've worked there for ten years, but here at uh, this cooperative, I mean, the owners do the same as the production people. So we we do the same. We have the same. Uh, we in, we are in the production line. We understand the need. We understand people. We listen to them. So it's just. Uh, that's what uh, something that uh, you can't really compare to any regular company. Molly, you grew up in this area. How do you sort of put in context this movement toward worker ownership with, say, the legacy of someone like Ella Mae Wiggins and the Lorraine Mills strike? Do they belong in the same in the same paragraph? Well, I thought that was a beautiful question. What would Ella Mae be doing today? And it really made me start thinking. I mean, I, I mean, I hope that employee ownership can become another face of the labor movement, right? As we're, as folks are struggling to unionize, I think that's a wonderful struggle when we support them. And I think there are these other models, particularly for smaller businesses. And we're starting to see this opportunity with many businesses also coming onto the market. Um, and we look at, there's some powerful studies that have been done about small businesses in Western North Carolina and how many of those will just in the next 10 years either shut down Um, or go off, you know, and these are important businesses, particularly to small rural communities. So we really see the opportunity for workers in small companies and large companies to have more of a stake, and as Walter is also saying, more of a voice through this model of employee ownership. And there's a lot of different ways to do it, and we're really excited to be part of the North Carolina Employment Ownership Center that's getting started, and other organizations like our 501c3 that is helping people creatively think about how they have voice, and that voice is tied to equity, and that equity is tied to really rooting opportunities and rooting wealth in communities all across Western North Carolina. And we feel like this is just a new and exciting movement Molly, um, that actually has, you know, also really old, old roots to it as well. That's our show from September of this year on labor and labor organizing. We spoke with David Zonderman, a professor and head of the history department at NC State, Walter Vicente, a worker owner and a plant manager at Opportunity Threads, a cooperative textile factory in Morganton, and Molly Hemstreet, the founder and also executive co-director for the Industrial Commons. North Carolina Public Radio is a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I'm Frank Stacio.